as we as we make our way back to our seats. Uh, for those of you who are guests here with us this morning, visiting with us for the wonderful uh, family holiday, which Thanksgiving is in our culture, I just want to uh, bring you up to speed. Dur- throughout the fall Sundays this year, leading up to the Advent season, we're having a series of messages focusing on questions that Jesus asked. As we began the series a couple weeks ago, we realized that Jesus a- asked far, far more questions than he ever answered. In fact, depending on how you, how you numbered them, because as we mentioned a couple weeks ago, in the original biblical uh, text, the manuscripts, which were written, the New Testament at least, was written in Koine or marketplace Greek uh, rather than classical Greek. Uh, the, the words had no spaces between them. You just had to tell from the context what was being written, and there was certainly no punctuation. So sometimes, you know, you don't know if it's a... It, if you don't hear it out loud, you don't know if it's a question or not. In our culture, we tend to go up at the end of our words. How how are you doing today? You know, we go up if we're asking a question rather than uh, just having remaining uh, unaffected and flat. But without a question mark, when you're reading it, sometimes it's difficult. Depending how you number them and how many are repeated, there's between 150 unique questions all the way up to over 300 that are written down and recorded for us in Scripture. Answers, far fewer. Total, maybe 10 answers, direct answers, where Jesus doesn't answer a question with another question, probably a little closer to three. So he asked far more questions. He didn't come just to give the answers to the questions we have. He came to reveal God to people. He himself, God, second person of the Trinity. Jesus said once they asked him, Lord, just show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. And he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You know God through knowing me. He wanted a relationship. He came upon the scene and God's truth from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had grown over the years into a large, cumbersome religion. And Jesus brought a personal relationship rather than the old religion reformed or in any other way set straight. And Jesus, in doing that, revealed to us our hearts. Oftentimes, he asked the question for you to clarify in your heart and in your mind what you truly thought or felt about something. He doesn't ask questions to receive information. We're talking about God. He knows the answer before he asks the question. He asks us a question to reveal to us a truth. Out of all of those questions throughout the fall, we're going to look at seven of them. And then just before Christmas season, we'll look at three of the answers Jesus gave. Well, the question we want to look at today uh, reveals people on Thanksgiving. It's appropriate because Jesus asks a question in the New Testament about giving thanks. And its setting, the setting of that is us, sinners, fallen humanity, a broken, wayward world where there's none righteous, no, not one. It's bad and it's getting worse. We all say that. When we're young, we don't notice the bad things. We don't tune into television. The Vietnam War was all over the news when I was a kid, but it was in the background. I didn't listen to the news and the body counts from Walter Cronkite on the evening news. I would tune in to uh, the cartoons, the Looney Tunes, Bugs and Daffy after school, or, uh, or Star Trek when it was in reruns. 
not the news, so the world doesn't seem so bad to a kid. But we know as adults, it's bad, and it's often getting worse. And that's not just an illusion, an optical illusion, or part of getting old. Scripture tells us, Scripture tells us actually in 2 Timothy chapter 3, that it's going to get worse. The bad times come from the hearts of people. Paul says to Timothy in his second and final letter to his beloved son in the faith. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. From that last statement, Paul seems to indicate that these people are not something in the distant future of the apocalyptic age, but in the here and now. This is who we are. As sinful humanity, we are by nature self-centered, not God-centered. And in the midst of that laundry list of wickedness, what do we find on Thanksgiving? Ungrateful. Ungrateful. Unthankful. And these are people who, as we look, as we unpack a little of that, as we go through the question that Jesus asked this morning, it becomes clear why that is right in the middle of this list and essential to a sinful attitude and a worldly attitude. Rather, this morning, Jesus asked a question that challenges us to choose thankfulness. It's a choice. It's a choice we make in every situation. In all circumstances, Scripture enjoins us, give thanks. That doesn't come natural. As we see what comes natural, Paul writes to Timothy, that's fallen human nature. Thankfulness and gratitude have to be learned, exercised, practiced. It's a choice, and for many of us, it's a challenge. Some of us, we just tend to always see the cloud for every silver lining. The glass is never half half full. It's half empty, and it's probably got germs in it, and that's cracked, and, and, you know, we just see all the negatives. It's hard to be thankful. Well, let's look at a a, a wonderful passage. I want to set it up by looking first in the, the biblical principle of who Jesus is. When Jesus came on the scene, things change. From how we find them, separated from God, sinful, the wages of sin is death, the cycle of sin and death, unbroken for generations, Jesus arrives, and suddenly we see how it could be, not only that, how it should be in our relationship with God. He is a good God, as we sang this morning. He is the life-giving God. And the first thing we want to look at is Jesus is the giver of life and health. In his will, there is no sickness. Adam and Eve didn't catch a cold. They were never sick. They had no physical limitations as we experience them. That's part of our fallenness. But Jesus came on the scene and we see glimpses of Eden, glimpses of glory throughout his ministry. 
Jesus came to give life and health. And it's nowhere more apparent than his dealings with people experiencing not only the disease, but the repercussions of leprosy. Jesus and the lepers. Oh, a few years ago in VBS, I got to teach a story of Jesus and the lepers, the very one we're looking at today. And we uh, played it up, and all the kids, we put little those little uh, stick-on dots that you use. We put dots all over them. I shouldn't have done that because the kids didn't hear leper. They heard leopard. They said, Jesus and the ten leopards. So the, instead of healing them, they're all, row, row, and they didn't think they needed healing. And then some of them, the more astute theologian, says, no, not leopards, leprechauns. <laughs> so they're all dancing for their lucky charms, and I don't know how much they got out of the story. Jesus and the ten leprechauns, Jesus and the ten leopards. But when Jesus dealt with people who were deemed by society to be untouchable, outcasts, the lowest of the low, the most misbegotten, unfortunate, pitiable people in society is his dealings with lepers. And as Randy reminded us this morning, never to forget those who are outcasts from society, either through circumstances of their own doing or for something outside, mental illnesses often, drug addictions are often involved. Remember people who are outcast. Jesus had eyes for these people. We see, for instance, and I love it, the passages focusing on Jesus this morning are coming from the Gospel of Luke. Remember what Luke's profession was? The beloved physician, Paul calls him. Luke is a physician by trade, and so Luke has insight into leprosy and how lepers are treated that we don't see in other passages. He always has eyes for Jesus dealing with, with lepers in his healing ministry. The passage that sort of sets the standard for us this morning, sets the context, is found in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 14. It says, While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now remember, this is probably at a distance because we see from Leviticus on that lepers had to stay at distance from healthy people. They couldn't touch them. They couldn't come near them. They had to warn people that they had leprosy. So this man doesn't run up and touch Jesus. He falls in the dirt and calls out, if you're willing, you can heal me. You can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. We don't know how many years since he had been diagnosed with leprosy. Far advanced case, covered in leprosy. The first human touch he felt in how long? He touched the man and said, I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Now people looking at that in Dr. Luke's description, he says in Greek, it comes out more fully, the man was covered in leprosy. Now, this is probably one of a number of diseases that in the ancient language they called leprosy. It was under that category, that Greek and earlier Hebrew word. The one that we think of, the leprosy where you lose all feeling, and over time, uh, through accident and misfortune, because you have no feeling, you lose fingers, noses, ears, become lips, you just become 
terribly malformed. That type of leprosy, technically, we call it Hansen's disease. That's the serious leprosy that people had to be quarantined because in Jesus' time, there was no cure. In fact, there was no treatment or cure until our lifetimes. Not the kids, but mine. Till 1960, no treatment or cure for Hansen's disease. We live in a different age now. But in Jesus' time, cast them out. They were contagious. It's a microbacterial infection, and they had to be set apart, or you could lose a whole population. Jesus said, yes, they were healed. Now, remember being cast out. Not only did you have an incurable disease, but because you were an outcast, you lost your job, you lost your livelihood, you lost your family, you lost hope. They didn't even have leper colonies like in Hawaii years ago where people were taken care of and fed and cared for apart from the healthy population. The lepers had to fend for themselves and they clustered most generally at the town dump, at the refuse center. And over time, people knew that when they were going to the dump, they put a little extra food in there. They didn't eat everything when they went to the dump and threw it out because the clusters of lepers would often feed on what was found in the town dump. It's a heartbreaking and tragic thing. So Jesus, he cleansed him of leprosy and gave him back his life. Then he tells the man, he says, go now and do what the scriptures command. Go to the priests and get a clean bill of health and be restored to society. I always wondered in the Old Testament why that was built in the clean bill of health after healing of leprosy since there was no cure for leprosy. (laughs) The Lord knew even then what Jesus would be able to do. And there were other things, possibly in this condition, the man probably had something like vitiligo, a skin disfigurement, a skin disease which took away pigment or so forth. Those people, they didn't know if that was infectious and they were often set aside too. There are other similar afflictions like psoriasis and others that the priests would keep close tabs on since they really diagnosed this based on Leviticus and they would allow you to continue back in society. But Hansen's disease, there was no hope for you. Well, that sets the stage. That's how normally Jesus' interaction with lepers goes. And now turn with me in the Gospel of Luke a little further down to chapter 17. Jesus is on a trip. He's going from the Galilee down south to Jerusalem. This is very likely the same trip that he cuts through Samaria, not the common trip, and he sat by a well and met the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well. This tends to be earlier in the trip. He's just on the border now between Samaria and the Galilee, and he finds one of those clusters of lepers. This one, all barriers have broken down. The lepers are outcast. They've lost their religion. They're religiously unclean. They're cast out from society. They're cast out from their families. And so they cluster together. And those barriers of ethnicity or religion that once kept them apart have disappeared. They're all lepers. They're all outcasts. So Jesus runs into a group like this in chapter 17. Begin reading it in verse 11. Now on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. They're following the rules. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. 
when he saw them, he said, Go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. It's an amazing healing. Jesus, at a distance, tells them, Go to the priests. Go get your clean bill of health. Be restored to society. And in faith, they went. It took faith. They just said, well, I still have leprosy. What are you talking about? I don't want to waste a trip and be embarrassed and and just all of the hardships. He says, go. And they went. And as they went, their faith became an avenue for their healing. As they went, they were healed. It became apparent to them. Can you imagine the rejoicing on that trip to Jerusalem? Their lives were given back to them. And yet, and yet we see something was missing. And it made clear in the question Jesus asks. The question was no one found to give thanks. The greatest gift, their life. And on Thanksgiving, we understand that it's not just the good things, the little things, the the nice meal or the clothes or the house or family who loves us. It's the breath we breathe. It's every heartbeat is a gift from God. Everything that man in his wisdom is able to produce, medical marvels, is all a gift from God. He who sets the molecules of your body in motion and dancing and the pathways of your mind, it's all a gift from Him. Everything we accomplish is a gift from Him. How grateful we need to be. But in this case, receiving back their very lives Most of them gave no thanks at all. And that's made clear as we continue that passage. Chapter 17, beginning again in verse 15. As they're going, they're cleansed. One. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back. Praising God in a loud voice, he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. The others... Most of them were likely Jews going to the temple to get their clean bill of health. But the one who was grateful, the one who saw his healing and went beyond the healing to the giver of the gift, wanted to praise and thank Jesus. Now Jesus asked the question. Jesus asked, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Funny thing about that word. It's not my favorite translation in the NIV because that's not the word for healing. Anytime Jesus has healed people or cleansed them, he says, your faith has made you clean, your faith has healed you, You know the Greek word they use for healing. We get our word therapeutic, therapy. The Greek word therapuo, that's where Jesus normally uses, except in two cases. Two cases where faith is in Jesus. You remember earlier in the Gospel of Luke, the story, it's recorded for us in uh, Luke chapter 7, I believe. Luke chapter 7. Woman comes, a sinful woman, notorious sinner, She comes into the house 
unwelcome, I'm sure, of a Pharisee where Jesus is at table, leaning on the table on a couch with his feet extended, and she anoints his feet with rich perfume. And she washes his feet with her tears of repentance. And she dries his feet with her hair hanging loose as in one in those days who was in mourning. And Jesus tells her, Go, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. That's the word he uses here. Only two places he does that. He tells the Samaritan who's come back in gratitude and put his faith in the giver of the gift, Go, your faith has saved you. The word for salvation, so that so, means you have been made whole. You've been restored, not only to your family and to your work and to your life, you've been restored to God. Go, your faith has saved you. What a precious passage this is. But where he asks were the others. Jesus was only batting 100 here. 90% of the people were ungrateful and unthankful. But friends, 10% is awful good in my eyes when I think of my own life. I think of every blessing, of every breath, of every heartbeat. I don't have time to give thanks for all of it. I could do it forever and never scratch the surface of God's blessing in my lives. 1%, none of us are one percenters. We rarely give thanks for all the blessings we have. And yet God notices. And in this case, moving in thankfulness from the gift to the giver of the gift, it brought health, healing, and salvation to this man. Talking about the attitude of people, when we, as we saw in Timothy, right in the middle of that laundry list of evil was unthankfulness, ungrat- ungrateful. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 1? Speaking of people who once knew God, they saw Him. They knew Him from creation. Verse 21 of Romans 1, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and foolish, and their foolish hearts were darkened. That's the case of humanity apart from God. When you have no God in your worldview, you don't have a biblical, you have a secular humanist worldview. Recreate the scene and he would paint them. There's a cab driver smoking a cigarette looking bewildered at this little family praying. That cab driver is Norman Rockwell's son. But you look at that picture It's a little lady from the country. This is 1951. New York City saw themselves as the center of the universe. Big cosmopolitan. Looked down their noses at country bumpkins. And here's a little lady with her little granny clampet hat on. Looked like rubes just fell off the turnip truck. She's got a little boy with her. You see their luggage, their meager luggage down at their feet. Little traveling carpet bag, umbrella, little boy's hat because he's wearing his go-to-church-or-go-to-the-city suit. There's not enough room in this crowded lunchtime crowd for them to have a table to themselves. And so they're there with a a jaded, worldly, hard-bitten couple young men. Last thing on their agenda is ever to conceive there's a God, much less to give thanks to God. But everybody in the restaurant, the old man in the foreground, the man, working man coming in the door, they're all struck 
that they're praying and giving thanks. I always wonder what the story was. Why is she there with a little boy? This is right after World War II. Maybe he lost his dad in the war. Maybe they're coming to the city because mom's in the hospital. We don't know the story. But whatever it is, they're giving thanks. They're saying grace. And it is amazing to the people around them. Now, how many times you can relate to that? You're in a fast food restaurant. Everybody's around you, shoulder to shoulder. You're in a school cafeteria, and everybody's laughing and telling dirty jokes and whatever. Are you brave enough to bow your head and say thank you for the meal in front of you? Now, if it's McDonald's, obviously you're not that thankful, but <laughs> it's all a gift. And what a witness it can be to those around us. King David had many ups and downs. He had many struggles in life, many disappointments, many tragedies, but he always gave thanks. And in the book of Chronicles, not the book of Psalms, a psalm of David is recorded in the book of Chronicles when the Ark of the Covenant came home to Jerusalem. And it said, David began his psalm this way. In 1 Chronicles 16, 8, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. Sing to Him. Sing praise to Him. Tell of all His wonderful acts. David had reach. He was the king. He could tell others that it's not me. It's the God of Israel is the one who has the power. He could tell of God's goodness. Friends, you have reach too. To your friends, to your family, to your workmates, people who know you, who your life has earned a hearing in their life. If you express gratitude regularly, and witness to them that it's all a gift. But we focus not on the gift, but the giver of the gift who loves us. You make known God's goodness to those around you. And when you do that, it's like yeast in dough. It spreads. It multiplies. When we finish with the encouragement Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul begins in verse 14. It's not on the screen. He's talking about our salvation because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you in his presence. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Let Thanksgiving overflow from your life. Let it overflow from one day in October, if you're American in November, to every day. Because when our Thanksgiving overflows, it's a recognition that God is the giver of all good gifts. And He's our God. And we're His people. And in expressing that Thanksgiving, Jesus' words to us would be, your faith has saved you. It's made you whole. It's made you well. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Lord, our country sets it aside this weekend as a, a time of national thanksgiving. But Lord, we look beyond the holiday to the one who gives all good gifts, who gives us life, who gave us Jesus. 
Lord, our salvation is the foundation of the hope we have in Christ. And Lord, help us to see that and recognize it every day. Be people of grateful hearts where the giver of all good gifts is honored. And Lord, may that Thanksgiving overflow as others see it, experience it, that they too turn their hearts toward home and turn their hearts to Jesus. We ask it all in his name. Amen. We're going to invite you to stand once more with us as we sing one more song of thanksgiving to God about his son that he sent for our salvation. Take the time today just to give thanks to God for everything he's done for you.